0: Welcome to Volume number 1 of this Uvula Audio presentation of The Time Traders by Andre Norton. I am your narrator, Adam von Bueller. The Time Traders was written in 1958 and is the first novel in Norton's Time Traders series of books, which include Galactic Derelict, The Defiant Agent, and The Key Out of Time. All these books are part of Norton's greater, forerunner universe of stories. The Time Traders introduces the series Premise. That is, a confrontation between Norton's Western heroes and the Reds and a mysterious alien race that has used time travel to alter Earth. The novel begins in the present day and ends up in Britain in two thousand BC in a tribal trading society. Juvenile delinquent Ross Murdoch is the main protagonist of the time traders. In order to avoid going to prison, he joins a secret government organization whose mission is to thwart the Communists and stop them from changing ancient history to their advantage. Murdoch is one of Norton's more memorable characters, and he returns later in the series. Though the story is a little dated, it remains a pleasure to read and a timeless classic. And now, Time Traders. Chapter 1 To anyone who glanced casually inside the detention room, the young man sitting there, "'did not seem very formidable. "'In height he might have been a little above average, "'but not enough to make him noticeable. "'His brown hair was cropped conservatively. "'His unlined boy's face was not one to be remembered, "'unless one was observant enough to note those light grey eyes "'and catch a chilling, measuring expression, "'showing now and then for an instant in their depths. "'Neatly and inconspicuously dressed,' In this last quarter of the twentieth century, his like was to be found on any street of the city ten floors below, to all outward appearances. But that other person under the protective coloring so assiduously cultivated could touch heights of encased and controlled fury which Murdoch himself did not understand and was only just learning to use as a weapon against a world he had always found hostile. He was aware, though he gave no sign of it, That a guard was watching him. The cop on duty was an old hand. He probably expected some reaction other than passive acceptance from the prisoner. But he was not going to get it. The law had Ross sewed up tight this time. Why didn't they get about the business of shipping him off? Why had he had that afternoon session with the Skull Thumper? Ross had been on the defensive then, and he had not liked it. He had given to the others' questions all the attention his shrewd mind could muster, but a faint, very faint apprehension still clung to the memory of that meeting. The door of the detention room opened. Ross did not turn his head, but the guard cleared his throat as if their hour of mutual silence had dried his vocal cords. On your feet, Murdoch. The judge wants to see you. Ross rose smoothly. With every muscle under fluid control, it never paid to talk back, to allow any sign of defiance to show. He would go through the motions as if he were a bad little boy who had realized his errors. It was a meek and mild act that had paid off more than once in Ross's checkered past. So he faced the man seated behind the desk in the other room with an uncertain, diffident smile, standing with boyish awkwardness, respectfully waiting for the other to speak first. Judge Ord Rall. It was his rotten luck to pull old Eagle Beak on his case. Well, he would simply have to take it when the old boy dished it out. Not that he had to remain stuck with it later. You have a bad record, young man. Ross allowed his smile to fade. His shoulders slumped but under concealing lids his eyes showed an instant of cold defiance. Yes, sir, he agreed in a voice carefully cultivated to shake convincingly about the edges. Then suddenly all Ross's pleasure in the skill of his act was wiped away. Judge Rawl was not alone. That blasted skull-thumper was sitting there, watching the prisoner with the same keenness he had shown the other day. A very bad record for the few years you have had to make it. Eagle Beak was staring at him, too, but without the same look of penetration, luckily for Ross. By rights, you should be turned over to the new rehabilitation service. Ross froze inside. That was the treatment, icy rumors of which had spread throughout his particular world. For the second time since he had entered the room, his self-confidence was jarred. Then he clung with a degree of hope to the phrasing of that last sentence. Instead, I have been authorized to offer you a choice, Murdoch. One which I shall state, and on record, I do not in the least approve. Ross's twinge of fear faded. If the judge didn't like it, "'there must be something in it to the advantage of Ross Murdoch. "'He'd grab it for sure. "'There is a government project in need of volunteers. "'It seems that you have tested out as possible material for this assignment. "'If you sign for it, the law will consider the time spent on it as part of your sentence. "'Thus you may aid the country which you have heretofore disgraced.' And if I refuse, I go to this rehabilitation? Is that right, sir?' "'I certainly consider you a fit candidate for rehabilitation. Your record!' He shuffled through the papers on his desk. "'I choose to volunteer for the project, sir.' The judge snorted and pushed all the papers into a folder. He spoke to a man waiting in the shadows. "'Here, then, is your—' "'Volunteer, Major.' Ross bottled in his relief. He was over the first hump, and since his luck had held so far, he might be about to win all the way. The man Judge Rawl called Major moved into the light. At the first glance, Ross, to his hidden annoyance, found himself uneasy. To face up to Eagle Beak was all part of the game, but somehow he sensed one did not play such games with this man. Thank you, Your Honor. We will be on our way at once. This weather is not very promising. Before he realized what was happening, Ross found himself walking meekly to the door. He considered trying to give the Major the slip when they left the building, losing himself in a storm-darkened city. But they did not take the elevator downstairs. Instead, They climbed two or three flights up the emergency stairs, and to his humiliation Ross found himself panting and slowing, while the other man, who must have been a good dozen years his senior, showed no signs of discomfort. They came out into the snow on the roof, and the Major flashed a torch skyward, guiding in a dark shadow which touched down before them—a helicopter— For the first time Ross began to doubt the wisdom of his choice. On your way, Murdoch. The voice was impersonal enough, but that very impersonality got under one's skin. Bundled into the machine between the silent major and an equally quiet pilot in uniform, Ross was lifted over the city, whose ways he knew as well as he knew the lines on his own palm, into the unknown he was already beginning to regard dubiously. The lighted streets and buildings, their outlines softened by the soft wet snow, fell out of sight. Now they could mark the outer highways. Ross refused to ask any questions. He could take this silent treatment. He had taken a lot of tougher things in the past. The patches of light disappeared and the country opened out. The plane banked. Ross with all the familiar landmarks of his world gone, could not have said if they were headed north or south. But moments later, not even the thick curtain of snowflakes could blot out the pattern of red lights on the ground, and the helicopter settled down. Come on. For the second time, Ross obeyed. He stood shivering, engulfed in a miniature blizzard. His clothing, protection enough in the city, did little good against the push of the wind. A hand gripped his upper arm, and he was drawn forward to a low building. A door banged, and Ross and his companion came into a region of light and very welcome heat. Sit down. Over there. Too bewildered to resent orders, Ross sat. There were other men in the room. One, wearing a queer suit of padded clothing, a bulbous headgear hooked over his arm, was reading a paper. The Major crossed to speak to him, and after they conferred for a moment, the Major beckoned Ross with a crooked finger. Ross trailed the officer into an inner room lined with lockers. From one of the lockers the Major pulled a suit like the pilot's and began to measure it against Ross. All right, he snapped. Climb into this. We haven't all night. Ross climbed into the suit. As soon as he fastened the last zipper, his companion jammed one of the domed helmets on his head. The pilot looked in the door. We'd better scramble, Calgary's, or we may be grounded for the duration. They hurried back to the flying field. If the helicopter had been a surprising mode of travel, this new machine was something straight out of the future. A needle-slim ship, poised on fins, its sharp nose lifting vertically into the heavens. There was a scaffolding along one side, which the pilot scaled to enter the ship. Unwillingly, Ross climbed the same ladder and found that he must wedge himself in on his back, his knees hunched up almost under his chin. To make it worse, cramped as those quarters were, he had to share them with the Major. A transparent hood snapped down and was secured, sealing them in. During his short lifetime, Ross had often been afraid— bitterly afraid. He had fought to toughen his mind and body against such fears. But what he experienced now was no ordinary fear. It was panic so strong that it made him feel sick. To be shut in this small place with the knowledge that he had no control over his immediate future brought him face to face with every terror he had ever known, all of them combined into one horrible whole. How long does a nightmare last? A moment? An hour? Ross could not time his. But at last the weight of a giant hand clamped down on his chest, and he fought for breath until the world exploded about him. He came back to consciousness slowly. For a second he thought he was blind. Then he began to sort out one shade of grayish light from another. Finally, Ross became aware that he no longer rested on his back, but was slumped in a seat. The world about him was wrung with a vibration that beat in turn through his body. Ross Murdoch had remained at liberty as long as he had because he was able to analyze a situation quickly. Seldom in the past five years had he been at a loss to deal with any challenging person or action. Now he was aware that he was on the defensive and was being kept there. He stared into the dark and thought hard and furiously. He was convinced that everything that was happening to him this day was designed with only one end in view, to shake his self-confidence and make him pliable. Why? Ross had an enduring belief in his own abilities, and he also possessed a kind of shrewd understanding, seldom granted to one so young. He knew that while Murdoch was important to Murdoch, he was none too important in the scheme of things as a whole. He had a record, a record so bad that Rawl might easily have thrown the book at him. But it differed in one important way from that of many of his fellows. Until now he had been able to beat most of the raps. Ross believed this was largely because he had always worked alone and taken pains to plan a job in advance. Why now had Ross Murdoch become so important to someone that they would do all this to shake him? He was a volunteer. For what? To be a guinea pig for some bug they wanted to learn how to kill cheaply and easily? They'd been in a big hurry to push him off base. Using the silent treatment, this rushing around in planes, they were really working to keep him groggy. So, all right... He'd give them a groggy boy, all set up for their job, whatever it was. Only, was his act good enough to fool the Major? Ross had a hunch that it might not be, and that really hurt. It was deep night now. Either they had flown out of the path of the storm or were above it. There were stars shining through the cover of the cockpit, but no moon Ross's formal education was sketchy, but in his own fashion he had acquired a range of knowledge which would have surprised many of the authorities who had had to deal with him. All the wealth of a big city library had been his to explore, and he had spent much time there, soaking up facts in many odd branches of learning. Facts were very useful things. On at least three occasions, assorted scraps of knowledge had preserved Ross's freedom, once perhaps his life. Now he tried to fit together the scattered facts he knew about his present situation into some proper pattern. He was inside some new type of super-super-atom jet, a machine so advanced in design that it would not have been used for anything that was not an important mission which meant that Ross Murdoch had become necessary to someone, somewhere. Knowing that fact should give him a slight edge in the future, and he might well need such an edge. He'd just have to wait, play dumb, and use his eyes and ears. At the rate they were shooting along, they ought to be out of the country in a couple of hours. Didn't the government have bases half over the world to keep the cold peace? Well, there was nothing for it. To be planted abroad someplace might interfere with plans for escape, but he'd handle that detail when he was forced to face it. Then suddenly Ross was on his back once more, the giant hand digging into his chest and middle. This time there were no lights on the ground to guide them in. Ross had no intimation that they had reached their destination until they sat down with a jar, which snapped his teeth together. The Major wriggled out, and Ross was able to stretch his cramped body. But the other's hand was already on his shoulder, urging him along. Ross crawled free and clung dizzily to a ladder-like disembarking structure. Below there were no lights, only an expanse of open snow. Men were moving across that blank area, gathering at the foot of the ladder. Ross was hungry and very tired. If the Major wanted to play games, he hoped that such action could wait until the next morning. In the meantime, he must learn where here was. If he had a chance to run, he wanted to know the surrounding territory. But that hand was on his arm, drawing him along toward a door that stood half open. As far as Ross could see, it led to the interior of a hillock of snow. Either the storm or men had done a very good cover-up job, and somehow Ross knew the camouflage was intentional. That was Ross's introduction to the base, and after his arrival, his view of the installation was extremely limited. One day was spent in undergoing the most searching physical he had ever experienced, and after the doctors had poked and pried, he was faced by a series of other tests "'No one bothered to explain. "'Thereafter he was introduced to solitary, "'that is, confined to his own company "'in a cell-like room with a bunk "'that was more comfortable than it looked "'and an announcer in a corner of the ceiling. "'So far he had been told exactly nothing, "'and so far he had asked no questions, "'stubbornly keeping up his end "'of what he believed to be a tug of wills. "'At the moment Safely alone and lying flat on his bunk, he eyed the announcer, a very dangerous young man and one who refused to yield an inch. Now hear this. The voice transmitted through that grill was metallic, but its rasp held overtones of Calgary's voice. Ross's lips tightened. He had explored every inch of the walls and knew that there was no trace of the door which had admitted him. With only his bare hands to work with, he could not break out, and his only clothes were the shirt, sturdy slacks, and a pair of soft-soled moccasins that they had given him. To identify, droned the voice. Ross realized that he must have missed something, not that it mattered. He was almost determined not to play along anymore. There was a click, signifying that Kelgaris was through braying but the customary silence did not close in again. Instead, Ross heard a clear, sweet trilling which he vaguely associated with a bird. His acquaintance with all feathered life was limited to city sparrows and plump park pigeons, neither of which raised their voices in song, but surely those sounds were bird notes. Ross glanced from the mic in the ceiling to the opposite wall, and what he saw there made him sit up, with the instant response of an alerted fighter. For the wall was no longer there. Instead, there was a sharp slope of ground cutting down from peaks where the dark green of fir trees ran close to the snow line. Patches of snow clung to the earth in sheltered places, and the scent of those pines was in Ross's nostrils, real as the wind touching him with its chill. He shivered, as a howl sounded loudly and echoed, bearing the age-old warning of a wolf pack, hungry and a hunt. Ross had never heard that sound before, but his human heritage subconsciously recognized it for what it was, death on four feet. Similarly, he was able to identify the gray shadows slinking about the nearest trees, and his hands balled into fists as he looked wildly about him for some weapon. The bunk was under him, and three of the four walls of the room enclosed him like a cave. But one of those gray skulkers had raised its head and was looking directly at him, its reddish eyes alight. Ross ripped the top blanket off the bunk with a half-formed idea of snapping it at the animal when it sprang. Stiff-legged, the beast advanced, a guttural growl sounding deep in its throat. To Ross the animal— larger than any dog he had ever seen, and twice as vicious, was a monster. He had the blanket ready before he realized that the wolf was not watching him after all, and that its attention was focused on a point out of his line of vision. The wolf's muzzle wrinkled in a snarl, revealing long yellow-white teeth. There was a singing twang, and the animal leaped into the air, fell back, and rolled on the ground biting despairingly at a shaft protruding from just behind its ribs. It howled again, and blood broke from its mouth. Ross was beyond surprised now. He pulled himself together and got up to walk steadily toward the dying wolf, and he wasn't in the least amazed when his outstretched hands flattened against an unseen barrier. Slowly, he swept his hands right and left, sure that he was touching the wall of his cell. Yet his eyes told him he was on a mountainside, and every sight, sound, and smell was making it real to him. Puzzled, he thought a moment, and then, finding an explanation that satisfied him, he nodded once and went back to sit at ease on his bunk. This must be some superior form of TV that included odors the illusion of wind, and other fancy touches to make it more vivid. The total effect was so convincing that Ross had to keep reminding himself that it was all just a picture. The wolf was dead. Its packmates had fled into the brush. But since the picture remained, Ross decided that the show was not yet over. He could still hear a click of sound, and he waited for the next bit of action but the reason for his viewing it still eluded him. A man came into view, crossing before Ross. He stooped to examine the dead wolf, catching it by the tail and hoisting its hindquarters off the ground. Comparing the beast's size with the hunter's, Ross saw that he had not been wrong in his estimation of the animal's unusually large dimensions. The man shouted over his shoulder, his words distinct enough, but unintelligible to Ross. The stranger was oddly dressed, too lightly dressed if one judged the climate by the frequent snow patches and the biting cold. A strip of coarse cloth, extending from his armpit to about four inches above the knee, was wound about his body and pulled in at the waist by a belt. The belt, far more ornate than the cumbersome wrapping was made of many small chains linking metal plates and supported a long dagger which hung straight in front. The man also wore a round blue cloak, now swept back on his shoulders to free his bare arms, which was fastened by a large pin under his chin. His footgear, which extended above his calves, was made of animal hide, still bearing patches of shaggy hair. His face was beardless, though a shadowy line along his chin suggested that he had not shaved that particular day. A fur cap concealed most of his dark brown hair. Was he an Indian? No, for although his skin was tanned, it was as fair as Ross's under that weathering, and his clothing did not resemble any Indian apparel Ross had ever seen. Yet, in spite of his primitive trappings, The man had such an aura of authority, of self-confidence and competence, that it was clear he was top dog in his own section of the world. Soon another man, dressed much like the first, but with a rust-brown cloak, came along, pulling behind him two very reluctant donkeys, whose eyes rolled fearfully at sight of the dead wolf. Both animals wore packs lashed on their backs by ropes of twisted hide. Then another man came along with another brace of donkeys. Finally, a fourth man, wearing skins for covering and with a mat of beard on his cheeks and chin, appeared. His uncovered head, a bush of uncombed flaxen hair, shone whitish as he knelt beside the dead beast, a knife with a dull gray blade in his hand, and set to work skinning the wolf with appreciable skill. Three more pairs of donkeys, all heavily laden, were led past the scene before he finished his task. Finally, he rolled the bloody skin into a bundle and gave the flayed body a kick before he ran lightly after the disappearing train of pack animals. Chapter 2 Ross Absorbed in the scene before him, was not prepared for the sudden and complete darkness which blotted out not only the action but the light in his own room as well. What? His startled voice rang loudly in his ears, too loudly, for all sound had been wiped out with the light. The faint swish of the ventilating system, of which he had not been actively aware until it had disappeared, was also missing. A trace of the same panic he had known in the cockpit of the atom jet tingled along his nerves. But this time, he could meet the unknown with action. Ross slowly moved through the dark, his hands outstretched before him to ward off contact with the wall. He was determined that somehow he would discover the hidden door, escape from this dark cell. There! His palm struck flat against a smooth surface. He swept out his hand, and suddenly it passed over emptiness. Ross explored by touch. There was a door, and now it was open. For a moment he hesitated, upset by a nagging little fear that if he stepped through he would be out on the hillside with the wolves. "'That's stupid!' again he spoke aloud. And just because he did feel uneasy, he moved. All the frustrations of the past hours built up in him a raging desire to do something, anything, just so long as it was what he wanted to do and not at another's orders. Nevertheless, Ross continued to move slowly, for the space beyond that open door was as deep and dark a pit as the room he left. To squeeze along one wall, using an outstretched arm as a guide, was the best procedure, he decided. A few feet farther on, his shoulder slipped from the surface, and he half-tumbled into another open door. But there was the wall again, and he clung to it, thankfully. Another door. Ross paused, trying to catch some faint sound, the slightest hint that he was not alone, in this blind man's maze. But without even air currents to stir it, the blackness itself took on a thick solidity, which encased him as a congealing jelly. The wall ended. Ross kept his left hand on it, flailed out with his right, and felt his nails scrape across another surface. The space separating the two surfaces was wider than any doorway. Was it a cross-corridor? He was about to make a wider arm sweep when he heard a sound. He was not alone. Ross went back to the wall, flattening himself against it, trying to control the volume of his own breathing in order to catch the slightest whisper of the other noise. He discovered that lack of sight can confuse the ear. He could not identify those clicks, the wisp of fluttering sound, that might be air displaced by the opening of another door. Finally, he detected something moving at floor level. Someone or something must be creeping, not walking, toward him. Ross pushed back around the corner. It never occurred to him to challenge that crawler. There was an element of danger in this strange encounter in the dark. It was not meant to be a meeting between fellow explorers. The sound of crawling was not steady. There were long pauses, and Ross became convinced that each rest was punctuated by heavy breathing, as if the crawler was finding progress, a great and exhausting effort. He fought the picture that persisted in his imagination, that of a wolf snuffling along the blacked-out hall. Caution suggested a quick retreat, but Ross's urge to rebellion held him where he was— crouching, straining to see what crept toward him. Suddenly there was a blinding flare of light, and Ross's hands went to cover his dazzled eyes, and he heard a despairing, choked exclamation from near to floor level. The same steady light that normally filled hall and room was bright again. Ross found himself standing at the juncture of two corridors. Momentarily he was absurdly pleased that he had deduced that correctly— And the crawler? A man. At least the figure was a two-legged, two-armed body, reasonably human in outline, was lying several yards away. But the body was so wrapped in bandages and the head so totally muffled that it lacked all identity. For that reason, it was the more startling. One of the mittened hands moved slightly raising the body from the ground so it could squirm forward an inch or so. Before Ross could move, a man came running into the corridor from the far end. Murdoch recognized Major Kilgarry's. He wet his lips as the Major went down on his knees beside the creature on the floor. Hardy! That voice, which carried the snap of command whenever it was addressed to Ross, was now warmly human. "'Hardy, man!' The Major's hands were on the bandaged body, lifting it, easing the head and shoulders back against his arm. "'It's all right, Hardy. You're back. Safe. "'This is the base, Hardy.' He spoke slowly and soothingly, with the steadiness one would use to comfort a frightened child. Those mittened paws which had beat feebly into the air fell onto the bandage-wreathed chest. Back, safe, the voice from behind the face mask was a rusty croak. Back, safe, the Major assured him. Dark, dark all around again, protested the croak. Just a power failure, man. Everything's all right now. We'll get you into bed. The mitten pawed again until it touched Calgary's arm, then it flexed a little as if the hand under it was trying to grip safe, safe, you bet you are the major's tone carried firm reassurance. Now Calgary's looked up at Ross as if he knew the other had been there all the time. Murdoch, get down to the end room, call Doctor. Farrell, yes, sir. The sir came so automatically that Ross had already reached the end room before he realized he had used it. Nobody explained matters to Ross Murdoch. The bandaged Hardy was claimed by the doctor and two attendants and carried away, the major walking beside the stretcher, still holding one of the mittened hands in his. Ross hesitated, sure he was not supposed to follow, but not ready either to explore farther or returned to his own room. The sight of Hardy, whoever he might be, had radically changed Ross's conception of the project he had too speedily volunteered to join. That what they did here was important, Ross had never doubted. That it was dangerous, he had early suspected. But his awareness had been an abstract concept of danger, not connected with such concrete evidence as Hardy crawling through the dark. From the first, Ross had nursed vague plans for escape. Now he knew he must get out of this place, lest he end up a twin for Hardy. "'Murdoch?' Having heard no warning sound from behind, Ross whirled, ready to use his fists, his only weapons— but he did not face the Major or any of the other taciturn men he knew held positions of authority. The newcomer's brown skin was startling against the neutral shade of the walls. His hair and brows were only a few shades darker, but the general sameness of color was relieved by the vivid blue of his eyes. Expressionless, the dark stranger stood quietly, his arms hanging loosely by his sides, studying Ross as if the younger man was some problem he had been assigned to solve. When he spoke, his voice was a monotone, lacking any modulation of feeling. I am Ash. He introduced himself baldly. He might have been saying, This is a table, and that is a chair. Ross's quick temper took spark from the other's indifference. All right, so you're Ash. He strove to make a challenge of it. And what is that supposed to mean? but the other did not rise to the bait. He shrugged. For the time being, we have been partnered. Partnered for what? demanded Ross, controlling his temper. We work in pairs here. The machine sorts us, he answered briefly, and consulted his wristwatch. Mess call soon. Ash had already turned away, and Ross could not stand the other's lack of interest while Murdoch refused to ask questions of the Major or any others on that side of the fence. Surely he could get some information from a fellow volunteer. "'What is this place, anyway?' he asked. The other glanced back over his shoulder. "'Operation Retrograde.' Ross swallowed his anger. "'Okay, but what do they do here? Listen, I just saw a fellow who'd been banged up as if he'd been in a concrete mixer.' creeping along this hall? What sort of work do they do here, and what do we have to do? To his amazement, Ash smiled. At least his lips quirked faintly. Hardy got under your skin, eh? Well, we have our percentage of failures. They are as few as it's humanly possible to make, and they give us every advantage that can be worked out for us. Failures at what? Operation Retrograde. Somewhere down the hall, a buzzer gave a muted whir. That's Mess Call, and I'm hungry even if you're not. Ash walked away as if Ross Murdoch had ceased to exist. But Ross Murdoch did exist, and to him that was an important fact. As he trailed along behind Ash, he determined that he was going to continue to exist, in one piece and unharmed, Operation Retrograde or no Operation Retrograde and he was going to pry a few enlightening answers out of somebody very soon. To his surprise, he found Ash waiting for him at the door of a room from which came the sound of voices and a subdued clatter of trays and tableware. "'Not many in tonight,' Ash commented in a take-it-or-leave-it tone. "'It's been a busy week.' The room was rather sparsely occupied. Five tables were empty— while the men gathered at the remaining two. Ross counted ten men, either already eating or coming back from a serving hatch with well-filled trays. All of them were dressed in slacks, shirt, and moccasins like himself. The outfit seemed to be a sort of undress uniform, and six of them were ordinary in physical appearance. The other four differed so radically that Ross could barely conceal his amazement. Since their fellows accepted them without comment, Ross silently stole glances at them as he waited behind Ash for a tray. One pair were clearly Oriental. They were small, lean men with thin brackets of long black mustache on either side of their mobile mouths. Yet he had caught a word or two of their conversation, and they spoke his own language with the facility of the native-born. In addition to the mustaches— Each wore a blue tattoo mark on the forehead, and others of the same design on the backs of their agile hands. The second duo were even more fantastic. The color of their flaxen hair was normal, but they wore it in braids long enough to swing across their powerful shoulders, a fashion unlike any Ross had ever seen. Yet any suggestion of effeminacy "'certainly did not survive beyond the first glance at their ruggedly masculine features. "'Gordon!' one of the braided giants swung halfway around from the table to halt Ash "'as he came down the aisle with his tray. "'When did you get back? And where is Sanford?' "'One of the Orientals laid down the spoon with which he had been vigorously stirring his coffee, "'and asked with real concern, "'Another loss?' Ash shook his head. Just reassignment. Sandy's holding down Outpost Gog and doing well. He grinned and his face came to life with an expression of impish humor Ross would not have believed possible. He'll end up with a million or two if he doesn't watch out. He takes to trade as if he were born with a beaker in his fist. The Oriental laughed and then glanced at Ross. Your new partner, Ash? Some of the animation disappeared from Ash's brown face. He was non committal again. Temporary assignment. This is Murdoch. The introduction was flat enough to daunt Ross. Hodaki, Feng, he indicated the two easterners with a nod as he put down his tray. Jansen, Van Wyck? That accounted for the blondes. Ash. A man arose at the other table and came to stand beside theirs. Thin, with a dark, narrow face and restless eyes, he was much younger than the others, younger and not so well controlled. He might answer questions if there was something in it for him, Ross decided, and filed the thought away. Well, Kurt? Ash's recognition was as dampening as it could be, and Ross's estimation of the younger man went up a fraction when the snub appeared to have no effect upon him. Did you hear about Hardy? Feng looked as if he were about to speak, and Van Wyck frowned. Ash made a deliberate process of chewing and swallowing before he replied. Naturally. His tone reduced whatever had happened to Hardy to a matter of fact proceeding far removed from Kurt's implied melodrama. He's smashed up! Kaput! Kurt's accent slight in the beginning, was thickening. Tortured! Ash regarded him levelly. You aren't on Hardy's run, are you? Still Kurt refused to be quashed. Of course I'm not. You know the run I am in training for. But that is not saying that such cannot happen as well on my run, or yours, or yours. He pointed a stabbing finger at Feng, and then at the blond man. You can fall out of bed and break your neck, too, if your number comes up that way, observed Jensen. Go cry on Millard's shoulder if it hurts you that much. You were told the score at your briefing. You know why you were picked. Ross caught a faint glance aimed at him by ash. He was still totally in the dark, but he would not try to pry any information from this crowd. Maybe part of their training was this hush-hush business. He would wait and see, until he could get Kurt aside and do a little pumping. Meanwhile, he ate stolidly and tried to cover up his interest in the conversation. "'Then you are going to keep on saying, yes, sir, no, sir, to every order here?' Hodaki slammed his tattooed hand on the table. "'Why this foolishness, Kurt? You well know how and why we are picked for runs.' "'Hardy had the deck stacked against him through no fault of the project. "'That has happened before. It will happen again. "'Which is what I have been saying. Do you wish it to happen to you?' "'Pretty games those tribesmen on your run play with their prisoners, do they not?' "'Oh, shut up!' Jansen got to his feet. "'Since he loomed at least five inches above Kurt "'and probably could have broken him in two over one massive knee,' His order was one to be considered. If you have any complaints, go make them to Millard. And little man, he poked a massive forefinger into Kurt's chest. Wait until you make that first run of yours before you sound off so loudly. No one is sent out without every ounce of preparation he can take. But we can't set up luck in advance. And Hardy was unlucky. That's that. We got him back and that was lucky for him. He'd be the first to tell you so. He stretched. I'm for a game. Ash? Hodaki? Always so energetic, murmured Ash, but he nodded as did the small Oriental. Feng smiled at Ross. Always these three try to beat each other, and so far all the contests are draws. But we hope, yes, we have hopes, so Ross had no chance to speak to Kurt. Instead, he was drawn into the knot of men, who, having finished their meal, entered a small arena with a half-circle of spectator seats at one side and a space for contestants at the other. What followed absorbed Ross as completely as the earlier scene of the wolf-killing. This, too, was a fight, but not a physical struggle. All three contenders were not only unlike in body— But as Ross speedily came to understand, they were also unlike in their mental approach to any problem. They seated themselves cross-legged at the three points of a triangle. Then Ash looked from the tall blonde to the small oriental. Territory? he asked crisply. Inland plains! That came almost in chorus, and each man, looking at his opponent, began to laugh. Ash himself chuckled. "'Trying to be smart tonight, boys?' he inquired. "'All right. Plains it is.' He brought his hand down on the floor before him, and to Ross's astonishment, the area around the players darkened and the floor became a stretch of miniature countryside. Grassy plains rippled under the wind of a fair day. Red. Blue. Yellow. The choices came quickly from the dusk masking the players.' And upon those orders, points of the designated color came into being as small lights. Red. Caravan. Ross recognized Jansen's boom. Blue. Raiders. Hodaki's choice was only an instant behind. Yellow. Unknown factor. Ross was sure that sigh came from Jansen. Is the unknown factor a natural phenomenon? No. No tribe on the march. Ah! Hodaki was considering that. Ross could picture his shrug. The game began. Ross had heard of chess, of war games played with miniature armies or ships, of games on paper which demand from the players a quick wit and a trained memory. This game, however, was all those combined and more. As his imagination came to life The moving points of light were transformed into the raiders, the merchant's caravan, the tribe on the march. There was ingenious deployment. A battle. A retreat. A small victory here, to be followed by a bigger defeat there. The game might have gone on for hours. The men about him muttered, taking sides and arguing heatedly in voices low enough not to drown out the moves called by the players. Ross was thrilled when the Red Traders avoided a very cleverly laid ambush, and indignant when the tribe was forced to withdraw or the caravan lost points. It was the most fascinating game he had ever seen, and he realized that the three men ordering those moves were all masters of strategy. Their respective skills checkmated each other so equally that an outright win was far away. Then Jansen laughed, and the red line of the caravan gathered in a tight knot. Camped at a spring, he announced, but with plenty of sentries out. Red sparks showed briefly beyond that center core. And they'll have to stay there for all of me. We could keep this up till doomsday and nobody would crack. No, Hodaki contradicted him. Some day one of you will make a little mistake and then-and then whatever bully boys you're running will clobber us, asked Jansen. That'll be the day. Anyway, truce for now. Granted. The lights of the arena went on and the planes vanished into a dark tiled floor. Any time you want a return engagement, it'll be fine with me, said Ash, getting up. Jansen grinned. Put that off for a month or so, Gordon. We push into time tomorrow. Take care of yourselves, you two. I don't want to have to break in another set of players when I come back. Ross, finding it difficult to shake off the illusion which had held him entranced, felt a slight touch on his shoulder and glanced up. Kurt stood behind him apparently intent upon Jansen and Hodaki as they argued over some point of the game. See you tonight. The boy's lips hardly moved, a trick Ross knew from his own past. Yes, he would see Kurt tonight, or whenever he could. He was going to learn what it was this odd company seemed determined to keep as their own private secret.